This is the Outstanding Advisor Podcast, the show that features outstanding financial advisors, advisors with an interesting story to tell. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell. Send an email to oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. That's oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. And now, here's the host of the Outstanding Advisors Podcast, David Macchia. A true giant in the annuity industry, Tom Hegna has helped thousands of insurance agents be more effective at communicating the value of annuities and life insurance. He's helped propel countless billions in sales. But this high-achieving individual was making an impact long before he entered the insurance business. You'll learn about Hegna's early life, his college years, and his long and distinguished military career. In short, you'll learn a lot about a man you think you may already know. Hi, this is David Machia, host of the Outstanding Advisor podcast, and I've got a very special treat for you today. A man who's not an advisor per se, but has probably done as much for the industry or more than any single individual that I know of. He's a giant in the annuity industry, and I'm talking about Tom Hagna. Tom, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thank you, David. Uh, you know, I've used a lot of your work in the past. You, you've, I've followed you for many years. Yeah, you're too kind. You're too kind. I, I don't think that anyone has had the impact on the annuity industry that you've had for, for many years. And I want to explore that uh, because there's a long story behind it. And if we could, I'd like to always start at the beginning. Where were you born? I'm originally from a small town in Minnesota. Both my parents were teachers in a small town. We we're, you know, probably lower middle class family, you know, grew up in a town of 2,500 people. Everybody knew pretty much everybody. Um, I always had a propensity for money. So I, I you know, I, I delivered newspapers. I was a paper boy for many years. I sold seeds door to door. I sold these things called Waterama buttons every year. There's a big festival in, in this town and they, they'd sell these buttons and then they'd have a drawing for a car. And I was the top salesperson, you know, several times. Uh, so that's kind of how I started. I, I went to college at North Dakota State University on an Army ROTC scholarship. I got three majors in four years. I uh, was commissioned in the military, spent six years active duty, served over in Germany for three years. I was down in Fort Huachuca, Arizona twice, Fort Ord, California. Uh, I then got in the insurance industry, but I was still an Army reservist. So I spent another 16 and a half years Army Reserve, retired as a lieutenant colonel. I was with MetLife for eight years. I was an agent. Can, I, can I slow you down? Because there's... Yeah a huge yeah. amount of stories that you're covering very, very quickly there. Yeah. I'm going to take you back to, to your hometown. Yeah. You come from a big family, small family. I have two sisters. I was the oldest of three kids. And uh, you, you got to college. And what was the college experience like for you? It was awesome because, see, in high school, I wasn't on the in crowd. I mean, I wasn't in the out crowd, but I wasn't on the in crowd. I was just kind of, you know, somebody that... And my high school experience was probably not as uh, nearly as fun as my college experience. My college experience was awesome. And I, I kind of did get in the in crowd. I don't know how, but I did. And, and so I had a lot of friends. I played a lot of sports. Uh, that's where I met my wife. Uh, I just had a, I, it was four very fun years in freezing Fargo, North Dakota, if you can believe it. <laughs> I believe it. How did you meet your wife? Well, I was a senior she was a transfer in from another school and we had this thing at, at 
her dorm was having a movie night and our dorm was invited and I see this little girl sitting up on this corner thing there and I had all my my guys around I said hey find out more about her what's her story and, and then they they went off and they found out the story and then I I uh, I sat down next to her at a at the lunchroom one day and I basically repeated her whole life story to her and she was shocked she didn't know me from anything and that's kind of how it started so great story um okay so now after college what was your first job i was a second lieutenant in the u.s army you know and i went down okay, to that's... fort huachuca for officer basic course it was commissioned as a military intelligence officer so i learned about military intelligence then i was sent to germany uh where i was a um, intelligence officer of an m1 tank battalion and then i was a counter uh, in well, I was an electronic warfare officer for a while as well. What years are we talking about here? No, that would be 83 to 86. I was in Germany. Okay, great. And that was uh, during the Reagan administration. There was yep. a, a big, rather big military buildup, I think, during those years. Yeah, those were good years to be in the military. It had been some very bad years to be in the military, but when Reagan got there, it was, it was a good time to be in the military. I mean, there was a Cold War going on with, with yep. Russia. Uh, yeah. There was still East Germany. You know, we'd go up to the border and we'd be prepared to right. fight. And right. We knew who all the Russian generals were and what kind of equipment they had. That was my job is to know the enemy as good as we knew ourselves. And so, I mean, it, it was very interesting. I bet. I bet for sure. So after you, you remained um, with, not on active duty, but you remained associated with the military for years after. What was your first job after? Um, stopping active duty um well in the military i was then a strategic intelligence officer and we was right here in phoenix and i was uh, mm -hmm. supporting either japan or korea um and i did that for the whole time and so we would be there so i went to japan twice went to korea twice but we'd go to hawaii a lot because i was right in between and so we'd meet in the middle as terrible <laughs> duty but i probably went to hawaii 30 times with the army but as far as civilian, uh, when I got off active duty, I started out as a MetLife agent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, right. And you had sales skills going into that job that were honed as a well, child, I, for sure. That's an interesting story of how I right. got there. So what happened was I was a company commander in the Army out of Fort Ord, California. It's near Monterey. And there was a MetLife agent going through my unit selling whole life insurance to my soldiers. And at the time, I was a buy-term invested difference. And I said, who's this guy ripping off my soldiers? I said, bring him to me because when you're a commander, you can do that. And he said, well, sir, he'll, he'll come and see you tomorrow, but he wants your birthday. I said, give him my birthday, but I want him in my office. So he comes in my office. I say, I hear you're out there ripping off this, these soldiers, selling this rip-off whole life stuff. He said, oh, no, sir, I'm protecting their families. I'm helping save up for down payment on their first house for their kids' college education. I'm going to give them tax-free income and retirement. And he said, your soldiers were nice enough to give me your birth date, so I ran a printout for you. And this was before the seven-pay test. This was a five-pay whole life at, at, yeah. at MetLife. And I look at this, I see, let me see this piece of crap. Okay, you pay it for five years, and then my <laughs> cash value is there in the sixth year. My cash value keeps going up. My death benefit keeps going up. I'm looking at this, I said, why would anybody buy term insurance when you could buy this? He said, well, I don't sell much term insurance. That's what I sell. I said, you get paid to sell this? He said, I get paid very well to sell that. And I said, I could sell that. And that's how I got in the business. So I didn't know how hard it would be. And it was it was not an easy thing, but I did make million dollar round table my first year in production. And I, I did sell a lot of that, that whole life. Well, that's quite an accomplishment. How long did you stay at Met? 
I was at Med for eight years, so I was um, I was uh, uh, and every year that I was there, I qualified for MDRT and and uh, you know President's Council. I was a top producer. I was a top producer in my office from day one, which is crazy because I didn't know anything. And but I I did know I did understand people, and I did learn a lot from the Kinder Brothers. I learned from Joe Jordan. I learned from a lot of people, and yeah. you know some of those masters fast tracked me, and I was able to you know, have some success early on. And then what happened was because I was this young guy, I was like 27, just out of the military and make, you know, I'm, I'm one of the top producers in the whole region. And then they, they'd say, well, Hey, can you come over to our office and teach our agents what you're doing? And so I had this whole talk. Here's how I prospect. Here's how I market. Here's how I get my leads. Here's what I say. Here's how I handle objections. And then they had me do a meeting there and then another meeting and then a bigger meeting. And then my big break was in 1992. I spoke on the main platform in Maui at one of their leaders conferences and then there's home office people there and th that kind of got me into some other things they they wanted me to take their vul program and so we tripled sales in one year with that uh, me and another guy covered the country and but that kind of got me into the speaking business because yeah. i was successful as a young person and how did i do it and that's kind of what led me into kind of a speaking career sort of reminds me of my own path um most interesting. Um, now, after MetLife, what was the next company? Well, you know, MetLife was going through the whole, um, uh, you know, demutualization and Bob Ben Moshe came in and he was, you know, cutting people left and right. And um, I just didn't like some of the ways things were going. And, and at the time, some some MetLife agents had gone over to New York Life. And if you remember, MetLife was at 1 Madison Avenue. New York Life was at right. 51 Madison Avenue, literally <laughs> a block and a half apart or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. so these MetLife agents were telling New York Life, hey, you should hire this Tom Hegna guy. He can get your sales up. And they're looking for some annuity wholesalers. And one thing led to another a guy by the name of Bob Meredith calls me up. And next thing you know, um, I'm working at, at, at New York Life. And I spent 15 years at New York Life. Yeah. Now... At some point, you were not an agent anymore, but rather came into the home office, right? Yeah. Can you describe yeah, I was that never, I was never an agent for New York Life. I was only an okay, agent so for MetLife. Okay. The whole time I was so, at New York Life, I was either in the annuity department or in the home office. Yeah. So when you first went to New York Life, what was your responsibility? Well, I had a territory of about, I think my first was 13 offices, covered maybe eight or nine states. And I was there to help them increase their annuity production. And, and back then, you know, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. It was pretty much VAs. VAs were the, the talk mm -hmm. of the town. And, and um, you know, when I got there in New York, life was probably doing like five or six hundred million dollars. And we got them up into the multiple billions of dollars. And, and my territory led the company quite a few years in a row. And then I, so I get a bigger territory and then I got a region and then I got half the country. Then I got, then I, then I was, I had all the annuity wholesalers and they gave me some of the, some of the life wholesalers, some, the long-term care wholesalers. So then I started running almost the entire wholesaling operation, you know, and then I started moving up in the home office, assistant vice president, corporate vice president, vice president, and first vice president, which is a senior executive officer position. And I retired in 2011. Got it. And then, you know, since since 2011, well, I want to address a couple of areas. I wanted you to talk about your first book and the impact that had. Yeah, so Paychecks and Playchecks was my first book. And, and really, uh, what happened was in 2009, I got asked by 
well, what had happened before that is in that 2008, 2007, that was kind of my big break. They had this um, boomer retirement roadshow. And that was right when the great financial crisis hit and yeah. every, everything went down. The stock market was down. Everything was down. And people were like freaking out. And, and I was there with this message. Hey, this is the perfect time. These guarantees matter. Guarantees only matter when the markets are down. And we've got the products that will solve these problems for retirees. They don't have to worry. They can get paychecks and playchecks for the rest of their life. So there was a bunch of that. We did that in like five cities around the country. And MDRT was one of the sponsors. So all the MDRT officers went to these meetings in Chicago, Boston, and New York, and Dallas, or wherever they were. And uh, they said, man, we got to get this guy uh, to the main platform at MDRT. Well, the first step, if you're going to speak at MDRT, is they send you to top of the table first, which is crazy because top of the table does like three times as much as MDRT, but it's a smaller meeting. And so right. like if you screw up, you're going to screw up in front of less people. So that's kind of where they test you <laughs> is at the top of the table meeting. And, and I hit the ball out of the park. And so then they put me the next year on the main platform at MDRT in Vancouver. And so that th those were what really, you know, took took off with the career. And it was my talk there that was called Paychecks and Playchecks. And so when we wrote the book, all we did was take my my talk, which we had printed out, and we just yep. expanded it and we had a chapter on this and a chapter on that and a chapter on this. And that's how we did it. It all came from my MDRT talk that was titled yep. Paychecks and Playchecks. Well, that book is legendary at this point. It's helped many, many people. So you deserve the greatest credit for that. Now, well, and, and you've all I did with that book, uh, David, is I, I, you know, I read a bunch of white papers. Because when I was at New York Life, they, you know, it was my job. To, to, to shift the focus from variable annuities to SPIAs. We didn't even have DIAs in it, just SPIAs. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you know, SPIAs, they're a great product, but they're not exactly, you know, super exciting. And so I had to study <laughs> them and I had to learn about mortality credits and I had to learn about longevity risk. And I had to learn about all this stuff that, you know, really only academics, Moshe Malevsky and Dr. Menachem Yari and Dr. Michael Fink and Dr. Wade Fowler, they write about this stuff, but how many people really read their white papers? Well, almost nobody. Right. And so... I was reading these white papers, I'm learning, I'm learning. And then I translated that over to, you know, training the agents at New York Life. And all of a sudden the agents started writing billions of dollars of SPIAs. And then we got the DIAs and then they write billions of DIAs. And, and New York Life all of a sudden had a 42% market share of SPIAs and DIAs. So income annuities, 42. And I think there's still about 40%, which is pretty uh, incredible. Yeah. And so I took what was working with, with that and that's what I put into the paychecks and playchecks talk. And that's what I've done. I'm just trying to help, you know, the entire industry get smarter on how to help people retire the optimal way. Sure. Yeah. And your speaking accelerated after that point. And how many, how many speaking engagements have you had since you know, the last well, I mean, or so? thousands, I, I, you know, I, for 30 years, I was on the road about 200 days a year, you know, for, for years, I just did it for New York life. I mean, I was on the road 200 days a year for them for 15 years. And I was just, getting the message out. And then when I went on my own, well, heck, I mean, State Farm called me, Thriving called me. I mean, all the major companies, I think almost every S&P 500 insurance company has hired me for an event or two or three or 10 or a hundred, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I started training advisors. That's where I started. But then, you know, you can only train somebody so many times and they say, well, I've heard that before. I don't need that. And so I, I and I did this at New York Life as well. I started doing public seminars. Well, public mm -hmm. seminars are forever. They can always get yeah. new people in. And so that that really helped me 
with the entire business, the speaking business, because, uh, you know, I can, yes, I can do training. Yes, I get hired by insurance companies to train their advisors. Yes, but I can also do public things. So, so that's very helpful because I can immediately drive sales to the bottom line because when I show people the math and science behind a retirement, I don't get objections. I don't get people say, oh, that's, that sucks. That's screwy. No, people say, that's incredible. I, I, it makes sense to me. Why doesn't every advisor talk like this? Well, they don't. <laughs> that's why I get, I get hired because I do yeah, talk to right. me. But, but I've had so many people that just listen to the message and say, I want what he's talking about. And that's what they call their advisor. Yeah, give me that. I want, I want what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, what you've done there is very important because you're moving away from the word life insurance or the word annuity, and you're describing what the vehicles do and the value they provide. And it frustrates me to know for so many decades now how wonderful these products are, yet how so many people view them as inferior or unworthy, or maybe just kind of reflexively disregard them. Uh, and you know, as you know from the many posts I put on LinkedIn and the many articles I've written, I'm trying to get you know, financial advisors across the country who are not focused on annuities to understand their value and their benefits. I wonder if you could talk about, you know, this idea that so many people factor them out, have just a blind spot, because I know you've confronted this many, many times over the years. How do you think about that? Well, you know what I do? I, I tell people all the time, if you're an advisor and you have somebody says that they hate annuities, I say, you can't change their mind. You've got a conflict of interest. If they buy, you get paid. If they don't buy, you don't get paid. They know that. I know that. You know that. We all know that. So if you want to change somebody's mind, what you have to do is put disinterested third-party references in front of them. You don't get paid whether they buy or not. I don't get paid whether they buy or not. Dr. David Babel, Dr. Moshe Malevsky, Dr. Menachem Yari, Dr. Wade Fow, Dr. Michael Finka, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, none of them get paid whether they buy or not. So what I do is I just put... I just put piece after piece after piece after piece after piece. I can build a case with like 20 or 30 articles that is unshakable and it will show the client, number one, your portfolio will do better if you add some guaranteed income. That's a fact. It's not an opinion. It's been proven many times over. Ernst & Young just did a whole white paper on it, okay? So your portfolio will do better, number one. Number two, the research is overwhelming. You're likely to be happier in retirement if you have some guaranteed lifetime income. And number three, now the research shows you're likely to live longer. So if I can if I can use a product for just a portion, we're not saying all your money, a portion of your money that will help improve your portfolio performance, it will allow you to be happier and probably live longer. Why would anybody be against that? And those aren't my words. That's the research of the leading PhDs in the world. So all I do is put the leading research of the PhDs in the world in front of these people and they go, oh, that makes sense to me. I'm not trying to sell them anything. I'm not, I don't sell annuities. I own 11 of them. I don't sell them. I'm not, I don't have an agenda. I'm trying to help people retire. See, everybody thinks about how much money you have. That's not true. There's two main things to retire comfortably. Number one, you want to have increasing income for the rest of your life. And number two, you've got to manage the risks. Risks like higher taxes, risks like inflation, risks like withdrawing too much, risks like sequence of returns, risks like withdrawal, withdrawal rate risk, risks like um, uh, longevity risk, you know, or needing long-term care. You've got to manage those risks. It's not about your rate of return in retirement. It's about managing risks and then having that increasing income. And I would argue as much increasing tax-free income as possible. 
most of my annuities are Roth IRA income annuities. So those will be tax-free income for the rest of my life. I've also moved more of my personal wealth to cash value life insurance. So I can flip that switch whenever I want. And that'll send me more tax-free income for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, I think those are both brilliant strategies that more people should be using. It's hard to change minds sometimes. I'll tell you about a, a meeting I had yesterday with a financial advisor. He, uh, he called, he wanted an explanation of my company's retirement strategy. I took him through the whole thing. I explained the advantages of you know, balancing risk and safety. Uh, all of these advantages, structural advantages, performance advantages. And at the end of the day, he said, well, I could do the same thing kind of with just with a rate of return approach. I said, a rate of return approach, what, what is that? He said, well, just by, you know, kind of putting it in the market and letting it sit. And I said, well, let me tell you two things. Firstly, after having researched this for about the last three years, really focusing on women's retirement, should you bring that story to a typical retirement age woman, she's going to reject you out of hand. Secondly, there is no guarantee that stocks always go up. We've had an unusual period in the United States where we had 13 years where stocks did go up. It's the only time in history. I said, but let me give you an example. Do you remember the firm Payne Weber? And he thought for a minute. He said, oh, yeah, that was a brokerage firm. I said, well, in 87 and 88, that firm hired me for two years as a consultant to travel the country and deliver a presentation on retirement income planning and life insurance as a tax advantage vehicle for that. I'd come up with that idea in 86. Anyway, I would show up at Kansas City tonight and Dallas the next night and Pittsburgh the next night. I'd walk into a hotel ballroom. There were three or 400 people there, 50 brokers. I would do my presentation and leave. The brokers would follow up and, and write the business. Kind of what you were talking about earlier, the public seminars. And I said, when my presentation was unfolding, there was about a 10-minute segment about Japan. And Japan at that time, in the late 80s, was scary to, to Americans because its economy was surging. It was threatening to overtake the United States. The Japanese were buying a lot of precious American assets like the Rockefeller Center, the Pebble Beach Golf Club, Columbia Pictures, Firestone Rubber, many companies. They had the highest rate of personal savings. They had the most expensive real estate in the world. They were a juggernaut economically, by the way. They looked very much like China looks to us today. Mm -hmm. But what happened in 1989? Everything crashed. And the Nikkei had reached its pinnacle. That's the equivalent of our S&P 500 reached his pinnacle in December of 89, 39,300. Guess what? It's 34 years, and it's not even near back to where it was in 1989. So I'm not predicting anything, but I'm always telling people, just don't assume that things always go up. Build in protection. Recognize there's risk, and that's everything that you've been saying. Yeah, and, you know, the European stock market has been down for over 20 years. We had the lost decade here in America between 2000 and 2010. So, I mean, you know, we've, we've lived through it. And, and there's a lot of people saying the next 10 or 15 years could be really tough sledding. We're, we're majorly in debt. We're going to have to raise taxes significantly. We're going to have to cut some other spending. I mean, they're, they're, and then, you know, what happens if China goes into Taiwan? I mean, that, that could upend the entire world, you know, and so... There's a lot of uncertainty out there. But what, what I say is when there's so much uncertainty, what people crave is certainty. And that's what we have in this business. We offer certainty. The broker can't say guaranteed. If the broker says guaranteed, they take them on in handcuffs. We can say guaranteed because our products are guaranteed. Yeah. 
it's such an advantage. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of unusual questions, perhaps, but I think they're revealing questions. If I could hand you through this, you know, technology we're talking through, a magic wand, and you could wave it, and you could instantly make any change you could imagine in the world of money, insurance, financial services, stock brokerage, the world of money, you could change anything instantly, what would you change? I just wish governments around the world were more fiscally responsible. You know, I think the irresponsibility of these governments to spend way more than they're bringing in to run up huge debts, what they're doing is they're stealing from our future. See, when you buy something today on credit, you are taking money from your future and you're spending it today, which you can do. But then what does your future look like? It looks that your future minus whatever you just spent plus the interest. And so I, I just think all this fiscal irresponsibility it's causing unnecessary high taxes. It's causing unnecessary divisiveness around the world because, oh, what's fair? Oh, pay your fair share. I, I get so sick when I hear somebody say, no, you got to pay your fair share. The only people paying taxes are the people that top, you know, 20% of incomes. They're the only ones paying taxes. 50% of this country pays zero income tax, zero. That's not fair either. So I just think every single American should have to pay five bucks at least to use our roads and our bridges. I mean, that's just me. So I just think the fiscal irresponsibility, the massive debt, the, the taxes, all that, that that's, we cause our own problems with fiscal irresponsibility. Well, you're right about the debt. I've studied this, you know, when, when the dollar and gold were delinked, the legislation was passed in 68, I think it was 1971 when it actually happened. Everything turned toward credit. At that time, there was a trillion dollars of credit in our economy. Today, there's 95 trillion. It's gone up 95 times. It's credit, which has created economic activity. And that long term, that's very unhealthy, I believe. But it's what's happened. Second question. Um, you are, I know, a great golfer. You're a brilliant golfer. I don't know how you found time, given everything else you have to do to become such a good golfer. I know you have a lot of other interests. If you weren't what you are now, but rather you could be anything else, a great Shakespearean actor, an astronaut, you know, a pro golfer, whatever it would be, what would you be? Well, I mean, I, I would love to be a pro golfer. I would love to be actually really good. I'm not. I mean, I'm, I've, I've had four good runs this week, so I mean, I'm feeling good about it. But I would like that, but I always said I would love to be a long haul trucker because I don't mind, you know, driving. That that's probably when I was younger. And I, I also mm -hmm. think if I would have stayed in the military, I, I could have made general, and I think I'd have been a good general. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I've seen good military leaders. I've seen bad military leaders. I think I have the, the the capacity to to be a very good military leader. You know, I know how to delegate. I know how to hold people accountable. I know how to motivate troops. I know how to you know, focus on mission accomplishment. I know how to brief the generals and, and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I, I really, I, I think if I would have hung in there, I could have, uh, I could have risen up to the, the general officer level, but you know, I don't regret doing what I did. Something had to give. I had a full-time job as a Lieutenant Colonel in the army and a full-time job, you know, being a executive officer, senior executive officer of a fortune 500 company, something had to give because I just couldn't, I just didn't have the capacity when I got four kids and a wife and, you know, I mean, I yeah. just did not have the capacity. Yeah. Something had to break. And so I just doing the reserve thing was fine. And then it was time to retire and, and, and that was fine. And 
By the way, I get a very nice military pension now that's more than what I got when I was a captain on active duty working every day. So, and then the health insurance, the TRICARE, that's worth that's worth a lot as well. Sure. Well, it's well-deserved. By the way, are, are, you, are you nervous at all about the direction of the military? I'm very nervous. You know, I have a boy, uh, JJ, who's a second lieutenant now at Fort Benning, and you know, I just see what he goes through, and I see the focus uh, of the military. It's it's a little disturbing. Um, you know, the, the job of the military is to protect the country. It's to kill people. It's to be prepared to kill people. I, I'm not advocating for killing people, but I'm saying that's right. the job, is you've yeah. got to be able to protect the country. And when you start getting into this society-type culture things, that really has no place in the military. The military should be, here's how you take apart and put together your weapon. Here's the military planning you need. Here's this and that. And all this other cultural stuff should be very much minimized. I'm not saying discriminate or anything like that. Military has been the best anti-discrimination, you know, in the military. There's been, they've been colorblind for many, many years, way before regular society went colorblind, the military went colorblind. And so, you know, I think there's a great opportunity for people in the military, but you know, when was the last time you saw a commercial focused on military people jumping out of air helicopters and yeah. doing things like, you know, hey, join the army, see the world. No, you don't see that anymore. You don't right. see that. And so, you know, who, what are they joining? They don't even know what they're joining. And I, I mean, some of this stuff has gone off the rails and I'm very concerned about our military. They, yeah. you know, they can't recruit people. JJ, when he got when he got commissioned, he didn't go to school for a few months, so they put him on recruiting duty because they're so short of recruiting. And he said, "Dad, I I can talk to a hundred people. Eighty of them can't even we can't even interview because they're they're overweight, they're on drugs, they they're dumb as a rock, they can't pass a written test. I mean, there's certain things you got to have. And the military is pretty high standards. You have to meet physical standards. You got to do push ups, sit ups, run a two mile run. How many of these young kids can go out and run two miles? Not many of them." And that's a problem. You know, when I was coming up, 80% of the country could qualify and 20% could. Now it's only 20% can qualify and 80% can't. And how many of those 20% are you going to get when they're, when the Google's offering them money, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, all these, it, it's, it's tough out there. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate and disturbing. Um, let me ask you, because you talk about retirement all the time. When you think about your own retirement, if you could imagine it in the most perfect, idealized fashion, where would you be and what would you be doing? I'd be right here doing this. I mean, I am 75% retired. I've got two houses. I got one up in Flagstaff on a country club. I got one down here in, in Mesa, Arizona on a country club. You know, for 30 years, I couldn't. I couldn't justify joining a country club because I was gone for 200 nights a year and I'm not going to pay the fees and the food and beverage and all that stuff made no sense. Now I'm a member of two and it makes perfect sense because I'm playing enough golf <laughs> to make it one of the best deals in the world. The deal I got here right now, it's, it's unbelievable. I can play unlimited golf for a very, <laughs> for a very reasonable amount of money. And, and so, and then, you know, I own 11 annuities. I've got, um, significant cash value in my in my life insurance we got stock investments i got four pensions you know I, I i'm one of those lucky people that has four pensions um and and we did a panama canal cruise we're going to take we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this fall we're going to do a greek island cruise i mean so i can't imagine it being much better than this and and so because i've got this guaranteed income because i've got these things we've set up a lifestyle that fits us perfectly. We spend our winters down here where it's warm. We spend our summers up there where it's cool. 
And, uh, you know, I can't imagine it being much better. Sounds like Tom Hagner's done a great job. And well, and I've been in... blessed with, uh, with enough. And, and see, very yeah. few people, you take a thousand people and ask them when they have enough, almost nobody, because if you've got a million, you want two million. If you've got two million, you want five million. If you've got five million, you want 10 million. If you've got 10 million, you want 25 million. If you want 25, you want 100 million. And nobody's ever satisfied. They always want more, 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 more. Well, I could work every single day and make more, 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 more. But what, what's life all about? And so I had to come to that realization. And, you know, I lost my best golfing buddy at age 56, lost another buddy at 42 from COVID, lost my dad, lost my mom. And I'm sitting in a hotel room one night and I'm going, what the heck am I doing with my life? I have enough right now. Let's just, let's do this thing. And so yeah. I did a trial retirement a couple of years ago. I posted it and I wanted to see would I get bored, would I like, I love it. Okay. And so now I just do some of this on the side. I do. I, I was just in the Bahamas last week. I'll take the Bahamas trip and do speak out there. And then I did a meeting in Greensboro coming back from the Bahamas, you know? And, I, and so, I mean, I will do some speaking. I do some things, but I am, you know, 75% retired. Yeah. Well, you deserve a rest. You've done so much for the industry. God bless you. And it's been just delightful to be able to spend time with you. And I'm happy to call you a friend and I admire you greatly. Well, and David, I just love what you're doing to help women retire right and help advisors learn how to talk to women properly. And, and you know, I, I that's one thing when I was an advisor, I always talked to the woman because I knew she was the decision maker. And, and, yeah. and if I could convince her, I didn't have to convince him. If he's being a jerk to me, all I did was say, bam, you just got hit by a drunk driver. You're going to be dead for the next 10 minutes. Now, let me explain to you what he what he just said. He said, you have enough. He has 200000 of life insurance at work in a 1% interest rate. Right? That's about $2,000 a year. He's saying you can do pay all the bills, do everything on $2,000 a year. Is there anything you'd like to tell him? And then I'd shut up. I'm out of it. I just had to convince her. She could convince him. I can't convince him. So that'd yeah. be another technique to use is definitely talk to the woman. They are the decision maker. Yeah. And uh, cut the husband out, you'll be better off, I think. Yeah, you're right. Since you brought it up, I, I will say this, because I, I speak to a lot of financial advisors, obviously. And I always ask them, the men, are you concerned about the fact that women fire such a high percentage of males after their husband dies? And all of the men tell me the same thing. Oh, no, I got a great relationship. 100% of the time. And so what that tells me is there's a lot of self-delusion and false sense of confidence in people's right. heads. So there's a lot of work to be done in that score. Thank you for bringing it up. And again, Tom, thank you for taking time to, to join the podcast today. It's been a, a real pleasure to have you. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell. Send an email to oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. That's oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.